Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. Praise him and exalt him here. Let's sing.
morning, Peckway Church. Go ahead and have a seat. So great to see you here this morning. Thank you for being at worship with us bright and early here this today. Uh, and we are so grateful for that. Inside of your bulletin is a great connection card. I'm going to invite you to take that out for those of you here in person. Go ahead and start filling that out even as I'm talking. Online, you're going to find a connect link there in the chat window that you can do the exact same thing. Fill that out this morning. And uh, we, you know, there's lots of reasons we ask you to do that. But one important reason is so that we can keep in connection with one another. So that if you have prayer requests, uh, we love to pray with you guys uh, and, and do that uh, for you and with you as you're asking God for things. Also, if you need any information about upcoming events or you have questions about uh, different steps of faith, we would love to be able to partner with you and do that. Also, if you are a first-time guest, very simple way to do that is take out your mobile phone and you can text the word hello to 717-872-5679. We'll flash, well, it's not on your screen in here, but on the screen online, you'll see that in there. Uh, but you can do that very quickly and easily if you're a first-time guest. And again, just opens this line of communication between us. We can text one another uh, and answer questions quickly that way. Um, so again, though, thank you so much for being here today and worshiping with us. You know, we're continuing our series, Faith Over Fear. Um, and today we're going to learn that, you know, one of the best ways to overcome fear is through worship. And so that's why we opened with what we did today, that video with about speaking his praises. And then we sang that when we praise him, that the giants in our lives fall, the things that try to overcome us, you know, God is so much stronger than that. And so we're reminded whenever we bathe our minds with scripture and with his word. And so, uh, you know, we're going to continue that uh, today. We're going to continue that worship. You know, we're going to practice that together. But I encourage you to do that throughout the week. Listen to Christian music. Uh, find favorite songs of yours that God can just speak to you through the lyrics in the song and remind you of his presence because he is with us and he never leaves us or forsakes us, he says. And so, um, but you know, today we are going to raise a hallelujah in this place. And so we're going to be reminded that, of that as we see one more thing here today. And then I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing together. today as we declare his praises, as we cry hallelujah to him. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a
glad he's alive today. Amen. Well, last week we introduced a new song to you guys, and it talks about um, that it's because of the blood of Jesus that we have victory. And so we're going to invite you to sing along with us today on this song. I know it's brand new. Um, if you listen to Christian radio, maybe you've heard it recently, but when you feel comfortable, just sing those lyrics along with us. Um, if not, read those lyrics and let God use those to minister to your heart today. Let's sing. Yeah. 
that firm foundation that we can build our lives upon today. He's worthy of our praise. Would you pour out your praise on him today? the name above every other name Jesus the only one who could ever say worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you we live for you holy there is no
pray with us? Father, we thank you for the firm foundation of your love. God, that uh, no matter what comes against us, whatever fears that we face, God, that we can be assured that you walk with us, Lord. Um, Lord, as we've been reminded today, that praise is a weapon that helps us overcome. Uh, Lord, so the giants, the things that we may be facing, the fears of insecurity or uh, the future, whatever it is, Father, we uh, can be assured today that you know the future, that you, uh, God, that you have plans for us. And uh, Lord, that we can stand firm upon you today, and we praise you for that. And we thank you and ask me, Father, Lord, that you would open our hearts as we hear your word today, and we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Pastor Scott, and thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. It's great to be with all of you again this morning. Uh, before we get into our message, I uh, just want to give a, uh, a quick word, just a quick thank you. Uh, today is the last Sunday for the uh, back-to-school supplies, and uh, the Lord has heard my prayers from last week. And a miraculous event happened this week, and uh, so it looks like as of now, I mean, we'll see when things are tallied tomorrow, but it looks like uh, Missy will get the pie in the face, and maybe even Larry, I'm not sure. So, but, any, but all joking aside, just want to say thank you. Thank you for your generosity, because we, we make, um, we're, we're making it a little fun with the whole pie thing, but the, the bigger reality, the bigger picture is that everything that was brought in is going to be going to help some kids be provided with the supplies they need as they prepare to head back to school this year. And that's, that's the bigger issue. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your generosity. And so with, uh, with that, let's turn to our, our passage here today. Today is part four in our series, Faith Over Fear. And today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 18. And I'm going to read the passage in a moment, and if you want to grab the the Pew Bible and follow along, it can be found on pages 198 and 199. It'll also be on the screen if you'd rather just read it from there as well. So, 1 Samuel chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one with him in spirit, and he loved David as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent sent him on, David was successful, that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officials as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can David get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul as he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you in marriage, only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him, let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my family or clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab 
Saul's daughter to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel, son of Meholah. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king likes you, and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So, before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word to us this morning. And as we continue to examine King Saul and and just the role that fear tragically had in his life. Father, I pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and give us open eyes to see, open ears to hear, and open hearts to understand what it is you are trying to say to us this morning so that we may be men and women and children that can live a life of faith over fear and bring you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage But I want to begin by just mentioning a word, and that word is simply parasite. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you you hear that word, but a parasite is essentially one living thing that lives or survives off of another living thing. When I think of where we live here in south-central Pennsylvania, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this region of south-central Pennsylvania has the highest amount of Lyme's disease in the state from deer ticks. A tick is a parasite. And when I even think about ticks, I just want to like, ooh, I don't like ticks. I don't like spiders. I don't like creepy crawlies. My family can tell you stories. Yes, one time I did scream like a a little girl. (laughs) But I also think of uh, um, sharks. Not that sharks are parasites. We just had uh, uh, the Discovery Channel just did their annual shark week recently. And uh, I don't watch that, but it's apparently this, this big phenomenon that's been going on for years. But when I think of sharks, I often think of a picture of a shark with this little fish just kind of hanging off of the back or the side of the shark. That little fish is called a remora. And it has like this circular mouth with these nasty little teeth and it just kind of like latches onto the side of the shark. And as the shark's swimming around, the remora is just attached right onto the side of that shark. And there's nothing the shark can do about it, but that little remora fish is living. It's a parasite that's living off of the shark. And I bring this up because when we talk about fear, and this is our main point today. When we talk about fear, I believe that fear can act like a parasite. A parasite does harm to its host, and fear, if unchecked in our lives, will do harm to us in some manner. That's our main point today. I believe we live in a day when we feel a need that we have to build up our own names. We have to build up our platform if you will, right? This is one of the the things, one of the impacts from social media influence. And we see this throughout our celebrity culture. Athletes, politicians, even even well-known Christian leaders and pastors. 
And what's interesting, though, and I just heard about this in an article I read again this week, that um, many people can go on social media websites, and there are ways that you can actually purchase followers. And this has, like, spilled over into uh, the publishing industry, even Christian publishing. Because a lot of the major Christian publishing companies, they won't give you a book contract unless you have a, certain, a large enough platform. Because their goal is to sell books. And so if, if you don't have a big enough platform, and I don't know how they figure it all out. But So that leads some people to buy followers. That's just part of the culture in which we live right now. Ultimately, we have this desire or a fear. We want to look more important in the eyes of others. And as I just said, this, I believe, is rooted in fear. Perhaps we could call it a fear of not measuring up or a fear of just not being popular enough. Or um, you're familiar with FOMO? F-O-M-O, FOMO. It's an acronym that stands for fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Many people in our culture in America today are guided more by FOMO than by wisdom, godly wisdom. We're operating under this fear mindset. And interestingly enough, or maybe we could say sadly enough, there are more and more studies coming out that are linking social media engagement with things like depression, increased anxiety, envy, even fear. And something I find interesting, and this isn't a message against like social media, I'm going somewhere with this, more and more um, as we learn about these things, did you know social media companies actually hire psychologists and biologists? to help design and develop their platforms. And they design them to make us addicted to them. If you're in my uh, Wednesday night class that we're currently in, um, you'll, we've said this numerous times, so if you're in that class, you'll, you'll, this will be familiar to you. The average um, smartphone user in the United States today picks up their cell phone over 2,000 times in one day. Because that's that addiction piece. We have to keep checking. Did somebody like that post? Those notifications, if you have apps, turn off those notifications. Because those notifications are turning us into like Pavlov's dog, so to speak. We keep checking to see if there's a new email, a new notification. Did somebody like my post? Did somebody comment on my post? You can even buy likes and comments, by the way. It's the same thing as, as um, same thing chemically in our brain as somebody pulling a slot machine lever. Whenever you pull that slot machine, it like releases chemicals in your brain. Whenever you pick up your phone and check your phone, it releases those exact same chemicals in your brain. Now, we may not realize it or not, but the very things we are addicted to are the things that can cause fear to well up within us. And as we continue our story looking at King Saul and the effects that fear had upon his life, we see that tragically he continues to be pulled deeper into what we could call a, spear, or a, a, a fear spiral. Like it's, it's getting worse and worse for King Saul, sadly. Three times specifically in this passage, there's reference to him being afraid of David. In verse 12, it says Saul was afraid of David because, excuse me, the Lord was with David, but he had departed from Saul. And that's, that's a key theological point for this passage. And this has been something that's been building up over and over, that the, the Lord's presence was removed from Saul and his presence was firmly with David. And again, in verse 15, when Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. And then again, verse 29, Saul became still more afraid of David, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. 
So I believe we could say that, that fear has been acting like a parasite in King Saul's life. And it's draining him of his own life in many ways. And so I believe from this passage there are at least three ways that we can see that, that this parasite of fear can present itself. And the first way it, fear can present itself is as anger. Fear can present as anger. Look at verse 8 of our passage. We're simply told, Saul was very angry. Why was he angry? Because this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can David get but the kingdom? Essentially, what's happening here is Saul is losing control. That's most likely what he's feeling, what he's experiencing in, internally in his life. And we're told that as the Lord was with David and not with Saul, we see that even his, his children. This passage begins with his son, Jonathan, giving him his bow and arrow and his sword and, and even his robe and his outer tunic. And essentially what he's doing is making a covenant with David. He's saying, David, my bow and sword are yours. My life is yours, David. I will be your servant and I will follow you wherever you lead me, David. That's what's going on. So Jonathan himself is turning from Saul to David. And then we're told at the end that Michal, his daughter, loved David. And so there's this, the principle is that just as Jonathan um, was turning to David, so now Michal, his daughter, is turning to David. And that's how the passage opens and closes. And so the people, the women, as they're coming back, remember this passage is right after the Goliath battle. And so as they're coming back in the town and the people are celebrating and the, the women of, the, of Israel are coming out and they're singing that song, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So clearly we continue to see here Saul losing control while Dave, God is raising up David. And it makes Saul angry. I would suggest to us this morning that anger is most often a symptom of something else. If somebody has an anger issue, the issue is most likely not the anger. There's usually always something underlying the anger, and quite often it's fear. Fear of the perception of losing control or of something else. The second way fear can present itself is as jealousy. Fear can present itself as jealousy. Now the NIV translation in verse 9 says this, And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Uh, the NLT and the, the CSB and other translations translate that as a jealous eye. That's kind of the underlying um, point that the, the Hebrews is drawing out there. And so because David is increasing and Saul is angry at him and he's, he's watching him, he's keeping a jealous eye, a close eye on him because of his selfish nature. I mean, let's not forget that he's a man who wants people to honor him. Remember back in, in chapter 15, we're told that uh, um, as he was going off to, to Carmel, he um, stopped along the way and he built an altar in honor of himself. He built a monument to honor himself. And then when he gives his pseudo-confession to the prophet Samuel, remember we talked about that? What does he say? He says, you know, forgive me and pray for me and come back with me so that we can worship the Lord your God and the people will honor me. Right? So we've seen already how Saul is a man who is selfish. He's focused on himself. And when his needs aren't being met here, or his perceived needs aren't being met, he turns with a heart of jealousy towards David. And just as with anger, I would suggest that jealousy is most often a, symbol of some, or a symptom of something else as well. And underlying that here is fear. And the third way it can present itself is as opposition. And this is a big one in this passage. I think I have three references on the screen and, and on your sermon notes, but um, since then I've, 
I've added two more from this passage. Verses 11, 13, 17, 19, and 25. Because this is what Saul does then. So, we're told that an evil spirit came on Saul. That's just a a picture uh, just showing us further how God's presence has been removed from Saul. And when this would happen previously, David would play his, his lyre and sing for, for Saul as a way to calm him down. And so that's what's happening here. But in verse 11, Saul has this spear in hand while he's sitting on his throne. And he says, and he hurls it at David, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. And then look at verse 13. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. Verse 17, Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Verse 19, so when the time came, For Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel, son of Meholah. And then one more, verse 25. Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So why reference all these passages? Because underlying them is that same principle of opposition. Saul's jealous. He's angry towards David. He's jealous of David. And so that leads him to then act out in opposition to David. He tries to harm him. He tries to kill him twice with the spear. When he fails, he gives him charge over a thousand of his soldiers and sends them out on campaigns. And then twice we're told that his idea there was not only just to send him away and create distance. I mean, what, what would you do? Like the guy who is making you jealous, you know, what else would you do? Let's send him away so then people can focus on me and he's out of the picture. Oh, and by the way, while he's away, we'll let the Philistines finish him off so then I won't even have to do it and I can still look good. There's deception in the whole issue with him and his older daughter, uh, Merab. Various forms of opposition. And even this, I would suggest, is usually a symptom of something else. In this case, fear. So the parasite of fear can present itself in three ways. As anger, jealousy, and as opposition. So how are we to deal with this? How are we to deal with this parasite of fear? I want to suggest two ways this morning that we can deal with this parasite of fear. Now, just as we, um, if you're going on a hike somewhere, you might want to do some things in advance to prepare for your hike. You know, you make sure you have good hiking shoes on. Um, You might want to make sure you have long pants on to protect your legs from any briars or branches. And you might even, you know, if you're like me, you would take out that tick repellent and you'll pretty much take a shower in that, right? Because you don't want any creepy crawly thing on you. But you, you prepare for that. Similarly, we can prepare in our lives to combat the effects of fear, to be prepared to deal with the parasite of fear when it raises its, its head, so to speak. And the first one, and this is what um, our worship has been focused on this morning, the first one is this, realign your heart through worship. Realign your heart through worship. And I'm going to reference Psalm 73. I'm not going to read it because it's, it's fairly long. But Psalm 73 is my favorite psalm. In, in all the Psalms. It's one that I have returned to over the years over and over and over again. But I'll, I'll paraphrase it for you. What happens is it's written by a priest named Asaph. And Asaph is on the Temple Mount and he's looking out over Jerusalem and he's, his heart is being misaligned as he's looking out over Jerusalem. He sees people in the marketplace and they're buying and selling. They're, they're getting rich. And um, I think the, the New Living Translation 
re- references them. He says, uh, the people are, are um, fat and happy or sleek and happy or, or something like that. And um, he's saying, like, they're healthy. They don't have any health issues. You know, they're, they look perfect. They have these wonderful images, and they're, they have all the food they can eat and all the money they could, could ever want. And what gives, God? What gives? And we're told at the beginning, as he's introducing this, he points out that it's the issue of jealousy. That he almost slipped. He became envious as he's looking out on them. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been looking out on others and you're thinking like, why do they have, why don't I don't have what they have? Essentially, let's bring Psalm 73 into modern language, right? He pulls out his cell phone and he's scrolling through Facebook. Well, I see the Johnsons are on their second trip to Europe this year. I see the the Smiths are at their beach house again. Oh, I see that the Joneses just added a, a new sunroom onto their house. How do these people do all of this? I don't have that money. Where do they get this money? Are they rich and I don't know it? Are they living by credit? What is going on here? What am I doing wrong? Does that ring a bell at all? That's what's happening with with Asaph in this moment. But it all changes in the center of Psalm 73. And I will read just a couple verses. He, He says in verses 15, 16, and 17, If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply And here's the key phrase, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Friends, worship is key for taking our distracted, misaligned hearts and realigning it with the heart of God and his kingdom. Worship is key. Worship has that refocusing effect on us, both internally, spiritually speaking, and then externally regarding our actions. Friends, worship is, in many ways, our warfare. I can't stress enough the importance of regularly worshiping the Lord in various ways. Corporately, like we are right now here on Sunday morning, But I want to remind us also this morning that worship is not just what we're doing right now, one hour a week. Friends, worship is a lifestyle. Worship is not an event. Worship is a lifestyle, not an event. What's your devotional life like with the Lord? What spiritual disciplines like fasting and and prayer and solitude and silence, where are those things, how are they playing a role in your walk with the Lord? Because it's our whole life that is lived in worship. And when we begin to grasp that, personal worship will begin to have a positive effect, not only on us personally, but I believe that how we worship God throughout the week will also impact our corporate gathering when we gather together on Sunday mornings. If we're gathering together here and we might feel dry if we might feel like the music isn't speaking to me or the message isn't speaking to me, I would suggest that maybe it has to do with our lack of worship throughout the week. Now, I'm not saying any of us are experiencing that. But friends, I do believe that is super important. Worship is our warfare. Worship is to be essentially our number one focus Because it keeps our heart aligned where it needs to be aligned. And as I said, it's a lifestyle, not simply an event. I like to say, whatever has your heart has you. Since we're talking about it, how much time do we spend on social media? Because that's forming our heart or deforming our heart in some way. How much time do we spend devoted to the Lord? Right? The second thing, we can understand the principle of reverse returns. 
The principle of reverse returns. And scholars talk about this. It's, it's a principle that runs throughout the scriptures from Genesis to, to Revelation. And what we mean by reverse returns is simply this. Whenever somebody wishes to do us harm, God uses it for our good and for his glory. A couple quick examples from the scriptures. One is Joseph, and I have references there. I'm not going to turn to them, and we're not going to turn to them and, and read them, but one is Joseph. If you're not familiar with Joseph, Joseph was the, the youngest of 12 brothers, and, and he was, his brothers were jealous of him again, and they sold him into slavery, and he was taken down to Egypt where he was a slave, and eventually he was wrongly imprisoned, and while he was in prison, he was forgotten and left there a little bit longer than what he should have been, but in the midst of that, God, through this principle of reverse returns, raises him up, and eventually he becomes uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man essentially leading all of Egypt. And God uses Joseph in that moment to not only save Egypt from a seven-year-long famine, but also the nation of Israel, his own family, is saved as a result of that. And when his brothers come back face-to-face with him, he, he looks Egyptian. They don't even recognize him. They haven't seen him in years. And eventually when they realize who he is, he says to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 12, he says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. That's the principle of reverse returns. What you intended for evil, what somebody else may have intended for evil in our lives, God takes it and he works it and turns it for something good. We see it again when Israel later is is in Egypt. And this time now they they have grown into a a great nation um, and Pharaoh has um, died off and another Pharaoh has uh, come into power. And essentially Joseph and his work For the previous Pharaoh was forgotten, and the situation is now one of oppression. And we're told that the more Pharaoh oppressed them, in Exodus 1 verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they were pushed down, the more God caused them to flourish, and they multiplied and grew. The principle of reverse returns. The early church, the early church, Dealing with their persecution, Acts 8, verses 1 through 4. At this time, it's a church of maybe a couple hundred people. And they're kind of hunkered down in Jerusalem. But what happens here is persecution breaks out. And we have the first martyr, Stephen, who is stoned for pointing people to Jesus and his resurrection. And as a result... um, We're told that a great persecution broke out. And many of the believers were then scattered out to other places. And if they're holding on to the gospel in Jerusalem, what do you think they're taking with them when they're scattered? That same gospel message. And so it's from that persecution, the gospel begins to spread all throughout the world. That's why um, the early church father Tertullian wrote these words, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The principle of reverse returns. God used that persecution as a catalyst moment to spread the gospel. But, and there's no greater, no greater example of reverse returns but the cross of Jesus Christ. What evil men intended for, for wicked things... They thought they were just getting rid of a rebellious man. But friends, it's in that cross, the blood that was shed on that cross that we sung about corporately a few moments ago. It's through that blood on the cross that our Father used that blood to cleanse the world of all sin, all iniquity. The cross of Christ is the greatest example of reverse returns. Again, even in this passage, we see Saul and David. The more Saul tries to get rid of David, the greater success the Lord gave to David. And the people grew in their admiration of David because God was with David. Now, you may be going through a difficulty right now. 
You may be dealing with some, some fear over a situation or even a perceived situation, something that's lingering off in the future. But I want to encourage us this morning to remember that God works for the good of those who love him. And he can bring good out of any difficulty that we may be experiencing. And friends, I want to encourage you. I, just a, a few years ago, I was in a wilderness experience. I won't go into the details, but I was, I was struggling. I was in a, 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 a dark night of the soul, to use the words of St. John of the Cross. I was experiencing a dark night of the soul. And um, I didn't know what next step in my life was. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see. I knew God was with me. I didn't forget that. But it, it like, wasn't a reality in, in a certain sense. And so during that time, I just clung. I clung to Psalm 31, verses 14 and the first part of verse 15. When I didn't have words to pray, this was my prayer. When I didn't know what else to say, these words became my mantra that I repeated over and over and over again. These words were my worship during that season. But I trust you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. God, I don't know what you're doing, but I still trust you. God, I can't see light for the next step, but I will continue to declare you are my God. God, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand, but I know that you, God, hold my life in your hands. You have all the details. That's what I clung to. Fear was right there. Fear was an ever-present companion during that season. But these words helped keep me grounded. I'm not going to say it was, it was easy. It was a struggle. But these words were my worship, my warfare. And all I can say is I'm right here with all of you now and loving it. Reverse returns. God's will cannot be stopped by any human opposition. And so in closing, I just want to remind us this morning that Jesus is with you. Jesus is with us. Let us never forget this. Jesus promises in Matthew 28, 20 that he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. As we walk faithfully in obedience and love through his grace, he is with us. And he reminds us also in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, this is part of what people refer to as Jesus' missionary discourse. In those verses, he says, um, And not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. In other words, he is with us in the big things, but he is also the God who is with us in the small things. He is the God of the large, but he's also the God of the small details. And because he is the God of the big things and the small things, we can trust him always. We can choose then to be proactive against this parasite of fear. We can be people that choose to live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. You are the one that brings good out of evil. You are the one that works good. Even in ways that we can't see it. Even when we can't see it, you are there. Even when we don't understand it, you hold us in your hands. I pray that no one would leave this place today or no one watching at home would turn off their computer without this seed just going deep into our hearts and minds today, Lord. Father, I don't know what people brought into this room this morning. But I pray that through worship you would just increase the spirit of faith in us today. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank you, Chris, for that message today. And as we uh, are in closing, I wanted to remind you of your grade card and your online connection card. And uh, 
maybe some things came to your mind that maybe you're fighting against um, and that you would like prayer for. Please write that on your card today. Do that online as well. Um, you know, as Chris was speaking, I thought of a few things and questions that I would even ask myself uh, as I was listening. But, you know, what am I living for today? What is it uh, or who? Who am I living for? Am I living for myself? Am I living for others? Am I living for the Lord? And, you know, what am I focused on? What has your heart? And so uh, maybe, you know, if you uh, feel prompted, go ahead and, and write that down and we'll be praying with you. I was thinking about when I'm driving, when I, my eyes are focused on the car that's passing me or something on the side of the road, I notice I start veering in that direction. I don't know if I'm the only one, but, you know, if you start looking at something and you're focusing on it, that's where you're going to go. And so if we do that uh, in our spiritual life, that's, that's what happens. So uh, just be encouraged to look to the Lord and to worship Him. Write down this scripture verse. It's Romans 12, 1. I love it in the message version. It talks about that our everyday, ordinary life, the things that we do, if we will focus on God and worship Him in those things, that our heart is going to stay focused on Him. So be encouraged with that today. Um, as we leave. Thanks so much for being here. I invite you back next week. We're going to celebrate uh, all the things that the kids brought in from VBS, and uh, somebody's going to get a pie in the face. So uh, invite your, your neighbors, friends, come and celebrate with us. Uh, either service will be doing that, so uh, right after the service. So hope to see you again next week, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks.